And Michael, do you have a joke for us? Or Jeff, do you have a joke? I I did task Jeff with coming yeah. up with a joke. I did. I did come up with a joke. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the joke of the day. When is a farmer like a magician? Mm, I don't I don't know. When he turns his cows into a pasture. Oh, nice. <laughs> it makes I was you like, think. It makes <laughs> you think. It makes you think. Those are the best jokes. Yeah. When you're like, should I laugh at this? Right. <laughs> <laughs> is this actually a joke or is it just yeah. cows going out in the pasture? It's a joke. I like it. It's a joke. Yep. You turn your cows, you turn them into a pasture. When people used to take their cattle out to pasture, you know, daily after milking, they would take right. them to the pasture, open up the gates and turn them out all it turning into a pasture right a pasture yeah the best jokes are when you have to explain it afterwards yeah i know that's the best <laughs> welcome to field notes today we're talking with jeff gaska a farmer near beaver dam and columbus in dodge county um uh, Excited to talk to Jeff today. Uh, I've worked with him quite a bit over the past couple of years on some of the different um, on-farm research projects that we've been collaborating on, specifically uh, focusing today on interceding cover crops into 60-inch row corn and then grazing it off with his beef cattle afterwards. So excited to talk about that today. Welcome on, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, if you could just start right like a brief overview of your farm uh some of the details of what's going on maybe just introduce what your approach is to uh grazing cover crops okay sure so we've been farming on the same um ground since the early 1970s um my parents bought a farm and we were kids and just kind of started farming from nothing we have no farming history in our far, our family background. So it was kind of out of the blue. And uh, back in that day, it was moldboard plowing and corn, planting corn and corn and corn and corn. And we had a few uh, Hereford uh, beef animals towards the end of the 70s. I think we started to get a little bit because we had a couple of um, areas um, that we couldn't farm. So they were grass and we decided to put some cattle on there. And over the years, I became to like the cattle part of it quite a bit and uh, um, as well as the crop farming. But, you know, we made those changes as other people were making changes too. going again from moldboard plowing to chisel plowing. And then we did some deep ripping for a while as we learned a little bit more about compaction and that. And then eventually made the switch to no-till um, probably a good 15, 20 years ago, I would say we really started into no-tilling and um, have gone no-till. We did try some strip tilling a few years ago, um, generally worked for us. It was a, it, what became more of an issue was the timing and being able to get that done. Um, I, I farm, my wife helps out, but she works off the farm and I have two young children. So it's mostly me doing the work and trying to find the timing to do that was difficult. Um, I like the idea of strip tilling and it, it did seem to improve our yield a little bit, but again, being able to get out there now that we're doing more cover crops, I have to find time to plant them and the strip tilling kind of competed with that. And in the spring, 
if I can strip till, that means I can probably plant. And so then you got to balance that. And to me, planting is probably more important than getting the strip tiller out there. So um, we've gone <clears throat> a little bit away from that. I may go back and revisit that at some point, um, try and maybe some new things with the strip tiller. But uh, right now, no-till is pretty much all we do. We uh, no-till our corn into what would have been last year's wheat field, and we no-till our soybeans into the corn ground. And the wheat gets no-tilled into our soybeans. So we have a true um, three-crop rotation. We switched to that about three years ago um, just because we wanted to get more small grains and cover crops and then utilize those for grazing our cattle. Um, over the years, our cattle herd has grown up to about 35 cows right now, uh, cow-calf pair. They're, we raise mostly Simmental cattle. Um, we do some crossbreeding with Red Angus um, to help kind of get that uh, hybrid vigor in our meat animals. So um, between the crops, the corn, soybeans, wheat, um, we run about 450 acres total. And... Um, Again, about a third, a third, a third with, and as we're adding more ground into rotational grazing as well. So we took out about 27 acres a couple of years ago to go to full rotational grazing on that with our beef herd. And this spring, this coming spring, we'll be adding another 22 acres um, through an equip grant. And uh, that'll all be for our beef herd operation and should be able to set us up really well with that for being on continuous grass. Um, during the spring and summer and in the fall move into grazing our um, uh, crop fields and being able to utilize those so um, awesome yeah. uh, and are you planting 60 inch rows and grazing cover crops on all of your corn ground each year or just a certain amount of it that's maybe more accessible for the cows or yep so what we've done is, what, what we've kind of figured out through planting 60 inch row corn is, I don't think you would do it for just grain production. So you have to have an added benefit because there is a yield hit to doing it. So we yeah. strategically place those, the 60 inch row corn so that it can be utilized by our cattle. Uh, the rest of the corn that we plant is all in the standard 30 inch row corn. Um, yeah. We do some interseeding. We're we're playing around with the interseeding and those other the thirty inch row corn, trying to see if we can make that work. Um, eventually, I would like to be able to interseed all of our corn, um, the thirty and the sixty inch row corn. But for right now, our main focus is on trying to get the sixty inch row corn to be economical um, with through grazing, getting a good yield of corn, and then through grazing and deciding what kind of cover crops to plant. Yeah, definitely. So when you are interseeding cover crops into that 60 inch corn, what species cover crops are you tending to look for, for, you know, the best grazing approach uh, and whatever your goals are? And uh, when would you be establishing those in that corn? Okay. So our, our corn gets planted usually beginning of May, like we would normally do that. And then we come back about six weeks later. So if it's the beginning of May, it would be towards the middle of June when we would do the interseeding in the corn. The corn should be about three to four, the, the V3 to V4 stage of growth. So six inches, maybe, maybe eight inches tall or so. And that, that's also the time that we apply our side dress nitrogen. So we split apply nitrogen on our corn. We put some in with the corn planter and the remainder with the, at, 
at the side dressing or that V3, V4 stage. So it, the nice thing about doing the interceding is not it's not creating a, another pass, an additional pass through the field. We can do it the same time we're doing the nitrogen. So we're planting around that middle to the end of June. Um, once the corn gets established, so we got a corn that's actively growing and established well. Um, this year, or this, yeah, 2023, what we did is we did a couple of trials where we looked at different species mixes for in the corn. The idea being, what can we find that can produce the most biomass for our cattle and have the least impact on the corn production? So again, we're planting corn. We still need that corn to produce a good crop, but we need, we were looking at biomass also for the cattle. And so we did three mixes. One mix was a very heavy brassica mix. It had a lot of, it had turnips and radishes and um, uh, canola in there or rapeseed. The second mix was a, um, we had a little bit of brassica. We used dwarf Essex rape at about a pound and a half per acre. And then we also mixed that with a, um, a grass mix, which was Italian ryegrass with some fistolium and timothy and a little bit of cl red clover and alfalfa. And then our third mix was just a base, I'll call it basically a straight grass mix. It did have a little bit of uh, legumes in it alfalfa and clover, but they really, what we found out is they amounted to a very minor percentage of the mix. So it was yeah. mostly ryegrass, Italian ryegrass, annual ryegrass that was in that mix. So we had those three mixes, um, watched them during the year. Will came out, took some biomass samples, looked at those and definitely the mix, the full brassica mix, it had just an unbelievable amount of, um, biomass in there um, would have had a ton of food for the cattle um, but it also impacted the corn you know the greatest as you would kind of think that would be the case I mean it yeah. was competing with the corn it grew almost as tall as the corn um, the corn in the field was a little bit shorter this year just because of the dry conditions that we had but yeah. it was a very tough uh, tough condition for combining um they call it a green carpet mix and it should be called the green jungle mix. yeah <laughs> it was quite a um quite a mix in there and, and a lot of vegetation the the mix with the uh, dwarf essex rape and the grasses even at a pound only a pound and a half of the rapeseed it still was pretty competitive it um suppressed the grass mix that was underneath it in a lot of situations um, but again, provided a fair amount of tonnage and some good food. The nice thing about the the rape is that it isn't affected by the frost as much. So we had hoped to get the cattle out there in early October to graze. Um, the corn just didn't mature rapidly this year. So we had wet corn and we had a, a hold off for a couple of weeks. Um, it was towards the end of October when we got in there and the corn moisture was dry enough. And so we had a couple of really heavy frosts in there and a lot of the turnips and radishes, those leaves basically melted. They don't like the frost very much, but the kale, not, I'm sorry, the kale, the rapeseed was, um, those plants could withstand the frost really well. So they were available yet uh, for the cattle to graze on. Um, and, but if I were to redo that mix at all, maybe I will, maybe I won't, I would cut back the, the kale or the rape in there quite a bit. I mean, from a pound and a half to maybe only a half a pound or something. The cattle enjoyed it. They, they ate those leaves and they liked it. But again, it was pretty tall. It got about as tall as the corn, 
Um, the nice thing though, it did not um, bolt and it did not go to seed. So we may have some issues with that in the, the heavy brassica mix. And then yeah. the third mix, the grass mix was, I would call that a, the perfect scenario that I was looking for a nice green carpet on the ground, you know, eight, 10, 12, 14 inches tall, um, a fair amount of biomass and um, impacted the corn the least. So. So you're talking about all these different mixes, trying to figure out what works uh, in your interseeded corn for both the corn grain and also just to provide the amount of biomass and the quality that you want. I'm just kind of curious, like, this is, uh, as I've worked with you over the past couple of years in this system, this is uh, not the easiest thing to get rolling and get working perfectly as we're trying to articulate it. You know, I think we'll find out what works the best, but why, what is your motivation towards moving towards this and trying to get this to work uh, on your farm? Yeah. I would say there's a couple of motivations. One is to better utilize our crop ground. I, I've kind of developed this, idea and this thought that instead of growing my crops to feed my cattle, I want to grow my cattle to feed my crops. Um, using them in the soil health mix to really improve our um, soil structure, our organic matter, our um, nutrient levels in our in our crops, and have a cover on our crops. It, you know, and when you do corn after corn after corn, it's really hard to get cover crops into that mix. So this allows us to do that. Um, two, we have this beef herd that we want to be able to feed um, as inexpensive as possible and to be able to utilize a lot of the things that we have on our farm. If, if we're not doing 60 inch row corn with covers, we're feeding them hay. And so there's a lot of management with hay, um, bailing it, making sure it's dry. If we can't do that on our farm, then we have to purchase it. So we're buying hay um, to feed our cattle. We have to deal with the manure. We have to deal with the management of um, feeding hay. And I don't want to do that. <laughs> I, I'm looking for a simpler way to raise cattle. And so doing this made the most sense um, to give it a try. And like I said, we, we've played around with it. We're trying to figure out a way to make it economical. Um, right now, if you just look at grazing, and the, the yield loss and the grazing, we're probably not at break even, but that's a, it's looking at only a few things in the economic part of it. Um, what we haven't been able to delve into yet economically is the benefit to the cattle in weight gain, uh, cover, you know, growing, um, weaning heavier calves, having heavier, better calving at birth, those types of things. Are, they can be hard to quantify. Some of them are easy. You just weigh it animal before it goes out and you weigh it when it comes in. Um, but the other non-intangibles, -tan but are important in any kind of livestock raising, you know, the health of the animals, things like that. We can't always put a dollar value on those. Um, I think if we could start doing that, I think it would take away that loss and yield um, much quicker and make it um, probably profitable, if not, you know, for sure break even, if not profitable. So, that's our next goal. Um, there's a lot of things going on, a lot of things we want to look at, but I think our next goal with this project is to look at the economics on the cattle end of it a little bit more and see what we can do. So, you know, that I want to, I want to do what's right for the farm, for the soil, reduce our inputs, reduce our um, workload. Again, it's mostly me doing the work. So finding an easier way to do that and um, 
being able to do it simpler. All those things kind of go into this, but I, I kind of have an inquiry mind. I like to get in the dirt and figure things out and try new things. So that kind of adds to it too. It, it, you got to make it fun. I want farming to be fun. I don't want it to be just the same thing, going out, plant crops, harvest them and be done. This kind of adds to that excitement of farming as well. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And it's fun for me too, being able to work with you on a lot of this stuff. So I'm going to set you up for a question that I might jump in later on as well. <laughs> but I want you to drill down a little bit deeper into kind of, you're talking about the economics and taking what into consideration. And I'm curious, even though I already know the answer, but <laughs> I'm curious for the audience perspective of how did we look at how did it pencil out? You know, how did we determine what was profitable versus not? Okay, so basically there's two parts to that. One is the the grain part, the corn part, the cash grain. We're doing cash grain farming. We have to look at the yield and the the economics of that. And then we have the um the cattle part of it, which is the grazing the interseeded covers in there. So the um Looking at the cash grain part, so planting corn in 60-inch rows, um, basically you say to yourself, okay, you're missing a row of corn. Every two, the, every row of corn, there should be another row of corn there at 30-inch spacings. How do you make that up? So the easiest way to make that up is to just increase the population of the 60-inch row corn. So we normally plant our 30-inch row corn at about 35,000 seeds per acre. When we've taken that row away, we double the seed in the 60-inch row corn. So over an acre, we're still planting at 35,000 seeds per acre, but in the row, we're now at 70,000 seeds per acre. So those corn plants are really close together. Um, some corn varieties can handle that better than others, and we're looking into that part too. Um, but planting them that close, they stress each other more, and you get end up with more ears, but they're smaller. What we found this year, um, comparing 30-inch row corn, the way we normally grow it, to 60-inch row corn, we lost about 30, just over 30 bushels to the acre. So we have to consider that. All our inputs were the same, whether we grew 30-inch or 60-inch row corn, even the same number of seeds, same amount of nitrogen, spraying, all that kind of stuff was the same. So really, the only difference we have is the, the yield in the corn. So 30 bushels times $4.30, whatever corn is going for now, we have to make up that difference somehow because that's a lost revenue source on the farm. So we plant the um, interseeding covers. We have the cost of the covers um, that we're putting in. And depending on the mix we used, it ranged from, I think, $12 up to 30 some dollars an acre for the mix. So we have the yield loss from the corn plus the cost of the um cover crop seed that we're putting in there. That cover crop then has to make up that difference in the yield and the cost of the seed. But it, the, the other side of that is if we're not grazing the cattle on those covers, then we're feeding them hay. So we have to consider that we save, we save the cost of hay feeding by putting them out on the covers and Basically, what we look at is how much does it cost us to bale, buy hay or bale our own hay and, and feed it? How much are the cattle eating of that hay? There's a dollar value there. We compare that dollar value to the dollar value of what we spent on the corn, the, the cover crop seed, and the loss in the yield. Um, this wasn't a great year for corn yields um, in our area. We missed a bunch of rains. 
Um, you know, hundred. we ended up with 160 bushel per acre on the 60 inch row corn with the covers. Um, the field right across from it where we did our um, control was about 200 um, acres. So, or 200 bushels per acre, I'm sorry. So 30 some bushel drop there. Um, different year, could have a lot of different results. I think we're, I'm happy where we're at. I think we have new ideas for this coming year that we're going to try. And so I, I, the potential is still there. We're not banging our head against the wall, doing the same thing over and over and getting the same results. We are getting different results and we're learning from it. So we're not insane, right? That's a definition right. of insanity. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned a lot of different things in there that you've included in sort of your uh, budgeting analysis. I'm curious uh, have you looked into like the value of the manure, like as a fertilizer out there? And does that, I mean, are they out there long enough to really contribute enough uh, fertility to maybe cut down on fertility needs through the rotation? Or uh, have you seen yield bumps or anything in the following year, like the next, the next year's crop uh, in the areas where you grazed cover crops versus not graze them? Yep. So the, the manure question is a big question. Everyone's trying to find ways to reduce inputs and utilize whether it's cover crops or animals to add additional manure or um, nutrients to the soil. Um, we haven't seen a, you know, like a significant increase in the phosphorus or the potassium in the soil, the potash in the soil and uh, things like that. We monitor that. We do soil samples every three years. Um, our thought our kind of takeaway and the way we're kind of running the farm is that we're going to continue to do soil sampling. We're going to see what's out there. We're going to continue to add nutrients per our soil tests, but we're going to watch those. And if we continue to do this on these same acres, you know, every th three years, we'll be able to graze the cover crops. Every, every third year, we'll be able to graze winter wheat um, and cover crops. If we can start to see those numbers sw uh, shift and go up where we can start adding less fertilizer, we will. So generally the, you know, I don't think there's a direct relation, you know, it, it, you can, if you're spreading manure out there, you can kind of gauge how much is going out there and you can do sampling. And there certainly is benefits from the manure if you're spreading manure out there. I know there are benefits from the cattle, their manure being put out there, the urine, all that kind of stuff, the, you know, working the uh, plants into the ground, the organic matter is changing in those fields. It is going up. We've been able to kind of track that over time. Um, but I'm a little hesitant on just saying, oh, we're counting the, all the manure as all our nutrients and we don't have to do anything. So we're taking a um, kind of like a trust but verify <laughs> approach you know, yeah. we trust that the cattle are doing something out there. We know that there there's a benefit, but we need to verify that somehow. And I think our by continuing to do soil sampling, continuing to add some nutrients, and we, you know, I we're at the point where we can our nutrient levels are at you know good levels through the soil test. So we're just doing replacement values out there, which economically helps you know with the farm as well. So. Yeah. Being able to do that, I think, helps a lot. And it does, I, I do think we gain, we are gaining. We just need to see that down the road. Definitely. Yeah. And it would take time with the size herd that you guys have versus like a 5,000 cow farm, right. for example. Yes. So, 
Yep. Yeah. But we do it, you know, field by field and we rotate those fields around. Like I said, we're on a yeah. three year rotation and two out of every three, three years, we can put cattle out on those fields and utilize them. As far as for the next crop, the one thing that I can say we have noticed, so all of our, all these fields that are corn are going into soybeans the following year. Um, when we plant our soybeans into those fields, first of all, ge they're generally the fields we can get into the quickest, the, just the cattle working it up, whatever it is, kind of helps the, you know, infiltration, they dry out quicker that way. Um, but they are always our highest yielding soybean fields um, every year are the fields that we graze, whether it's a, grazing a cover crop with the interseeded corn or just corn stovers. Some fields we just gra graze the corn, yeah. they are always our highest yielding soybeans. So I can't say it's all because of the manure. Um, there's a lot of things that go on because the cattle are out there, but um, yeah. you definitely see a benefit in the soybeans. Cool. So we're talking about this system that you're trying to kind of perfect and you know you've been doing this for several years figuring out what works and then trying to kind of articulate the system to then meet the next challenge and so this year was a challenging year uh with the drought and everything but i'm just curious like overall what have been some of the challenges that you've had trying to get the system to work and how are you taking those into the future and addressing them you know for example this next coming growing season Yep. So one of the um, challenges we face is um, weed control. For example, we um, when you plant a cover crop into a cornfield, you got to account for that. You can't you can't have a residual herbicide in there because the cover crops won't grow. So we've had to kind of change our um, our weed control ideas on the corn. What we do now is a um, a burn down at planting or immediately after planting to kill any weeds that are growing in there at the time. But that is normally in our 30 inch row corn when we would put a residual in the mix and then that would, should under normal conditions, keep our weeds at bay for the remainder of the growing season. Um, so we can't do that. We have to do something that just it has either a very, very short residual like a day or two or something like that or no residual at all. And then when we come back in and plant our covers which is about six weeks later um, we have to do another herbicide pass through there. And so we're killing everything that's growing at that point. And again, we cannot use a residual at that time just because that is the time that we're planting the covers and our covers need to be able to grow in there. So we've had to watch that closely and see we, so far we haven't had any major negative impacts from the weeds. Um, the lat where we did the heavy covers in the 60 inch row corn this year, there was enough cover crop growth to suppress weeds. Um, there were occasional weeds out there, mostly lambs quarters, um, a little bit of water hemp, but not concerning amount. Um, so the cover crops seem to be able to control um, to some degree those weeds in there. What we did notice in a, in a second study that we did where we just used the ryegrass, Italian ryegrass uh, mix, um, the way our um, interseeding planter was set up, we left a, about a 10 inch or 20 inch gap where the, where the, where normally you would have that third, when you'd plant it on 30 inch rows, where you normally had that other row of corn that we took out, we did have weed growth coming in through there. And so that was a challenge this year. It did, um, it didn't hurt the crop too much, but it's there and it's producing weed seeds. And so we have to address that. And 
the way we're going to address that, again, a challenge is um, adjusting our interseeder unit and being able to fill that gap where we had no cover crop growth, move the row units together more so that we don't have a, a 20 inch gap of nothing growing in between the 60 inch row of corn. So that was a challenge. You know, we didn't, we did this last year, but we didn't see that gap in there. Um, the cover crops didn't grow quite as well in 2022 as they did this year. So again, something you see, you get different rains, different growths, you learn things as you see. So we have to make that change. I think we can overcome that situation though. Um, as far as harvesting the cover crops, not a big change when the cover crops are low to the ground, like our Italian ryegrass mix, which was really easy to combine, where we had the really thick, lush um, brassicas growing in there. We ran into issues because it, it was growing right in the cornrows. It was leaning on the cornrows. It was intertwining with the cobs. Um, I had to put a, um, a bar in front of the corn row on my corn head on the rows we weren't harvesting to push the covers down as I was combining them. Otherwise, they were getting caught up in the combine and being brought into the combine and mixing with the corn seeds. So we had some issues there. Um, it made it a little more interesting to combine, a little slower. Uh, but again, uh, it's a challenge, but it's a learning experience. Um, at least I was able to quickly fabricate some bar, metal bars to put in front and and reduce it considerably from what it would have been if we didn't do that. So those are some of the challenges, but you know, we're learning as we go and kind of seeing what we can do to um, evaluate that and, and not make those mistakes, but continue to try new things. So yeah, if you hadn't had those bars on there, I might have had to sit on top of the head and push down the covers <laughs> as you rolled past. <laughs> yep. Um, I would have you, gave you stomping shoes, snowshoes, and you would have walked in front of me and yeah, <laughs> pushed it all down in front of me. <laughs> that would have been a great image. Extension <laughs> helping with harvest yep. as they as best they can. Yep. Um, one thing I also just want to add to that that I thought was really interesting, where you did the 30 intro uh, interceding, with the annual ryegrass, which is just on a couple of things, you know, where you were talking about the weed issues in the thirties with the annual ryegrass, I didn't see a weed out there. It was totally clean. And so I think, uh, like you were saying, pushing those row spacing, you know, obviously there's more shading in that, but pushing those row units closer together will help to really be competitive against some of those weeds. And, you know, you can get away with just two burn down passes rather than spraying a residual. Right. Yep. Yeah. And that, that's a good point. I, you know, I think we did, we were surprised with what the 30 inch rows, you know, with the ryegrass um, interseeding mix could do. Um, so we're going to play around with that a little bit more this year, um, as well as changing around the row units in the 60 inch row. I think we have some benefit there. Um, the other thing we're going to try a little bit with is maybe adding some nitrogen. So right now, the way our, we're set up, we have wide drop nozzles on our um, applicator that basically puts the nitrogen right at the base of the corn plant. And so the in the middle of those 60 intros, there's no nitrogen applied. And we might try applying some nitrogen to that ryegrass for two reasons. One, to see if we can't get more ryegrass growth. Maybe we get a more biomass that way. But two, by providing that ryegrass with some nitrogen, can we maybe um, cause it to not steal it from the corn. You know, maybe it'll have enough nutrients there that it doesn't have to go and rob the corn for those nutrients. So um, 
we'll learn some stuff from that, maybe applying a couple of different rates or something and see what we can get out of that. But um, hopefully it'll work. We uh, kind of ask a variation of this question for everyone that comes on the, the podcast or field notes with us. But uh, so, if, you know, you got started in this at some point, right? So if there was somebody out there that's kind of interested in some of the things you're talking about and wants to get started, is there anywhere you would kind of point them in the direction of to go for more information or uh, resources that could help them? Yep. So I know, you know, cover crops are new, but really gaining steam, I would say, you know, a, a, there's a lot of people doing a lot of different things from something as simple as putting rye in after winter or after soybeans to the whole soil health thing, you know, and um, planning covers and planting green and using cattle in the mix and things like that. So there's a lot of information on Facebook, on YouTube channels. Um, there's a lot of farmer groups, our Dodge County Farmers for Healthy Soil, Healthy Water, uh, Watershed group. We have people trying a lot of these different um, things as well. I would say probably the key thing is to get a mentor. <laughs> I think having someone that you can call uh, any time of the day or night, you know, and talk to that has done what you're trying to do um, is really key because there are a lot of challenges. There are a lot of um, things you're going to run into that you never thought you were going to see when you're doing this. And having someone to talk to, having, you know, a, a mentor is in a, a single person or a farmer led group that you can contact that you can become involved with that you can work with. The UW extension has a lot of resources, you know, the crops and soils agents, those types of people can help, or they can get you in touch with mentors um, to do that type of work. But really talking with someone, working with someone, because you're going to fail at some point when you're doing cover crops, just like you can fail when you're doing corn. You could be, you could have planted corn for 50 years in a row. And at some point in there, you failed. It didn't work the way you wanted it to. Soybeans are the same thing. Wheat's the same thing. You know, there's going to be an issue that comes up that makes it difficult, but you need support, <laughs> a support group to, to help you through that, to talk it through and look at, find out what happened and what you can change the next time. And I think that's probably the, the key. I, I've seen too many farmers try cover crops and fail. I don't want to say fail, but it didn't do what they expected it to do. And then they quit and they're done with it because it, it wasn't the silver bullet and it's not. Cover crops are not the silver bullet. They are a bullet in the gun that you can use to improve yields and you know help soil health and help the environment and all that. So um, knowing that there are going to be issues, it's not all easy, but that there are options out there to help, I think are the key things. Yeah, there's definitely no silver bullet unless uh, the silver bullet is telling Jeff uh, to ask him questions and <laughs> serve as your mentor. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. It's always super fun to talk about um, these systems and trying to get into work um, on your farm and sharing that information with everybody out there. We really appreciate it. Yep, not an issue. I enjoy doing it. I think if I can help someone gain some knowledge or try something new or get into cover crops, I'm, that's a, a win for me. So I'm, I'm happy to help out where I can. 
Thanks for listening. This has been Field Notes from UW-Madison Extension. My name is Will Fulwider, Regional Crops Educator for Dean and Dodge Counties. And I was joined by my co-host Michael Geisinger, Outreach Specialist in Northwest Wisconsin for the Nutrient and Pest Management Program of UW-Madison. A big thank you to Joe Ryan for creating our theme music and to Abby Wilkie-Maki for our logo. If you have any questions about anything you've heard today or about your farming practices in general, reach out to the Extension Agriculture Educators serving your region.